This morning's message comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives, to, who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wage, wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, merciful, loving Father, we pray now that as we prepare to to walk through these, these verses from 1 Corinthians, penned by your servant and apostle Paul, Under the guidance and influence and direction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to humble ourselves before your word. We pray that we would not be the kind of church that looks down upon the church in Corinth and thinks to ourselves, that could never be us. Because it could easily be this church or any church that takes their eyes off of Christ and begins to focus upon themselves. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us as a church, that you would speak to us individually. For the lessons that we see in this book and in this passage apply not just to the church, but they apply to relationships within the home, within the work, So, Father, we pray that you would guide our thoughts. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And we pray that you would help us to focus upon upon you at this moment, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, February of 2006, uh, pastor and theologian John Piper delivered a message, a a final message, before he was about to go on a five-month sabbatical that the uh, church had uh, given him. And in that message, he cites, and the text that he uses is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appear to you, brothers, uh, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its And he used that text and delivered that message because he was concerned about what might happen to the church during his five-month departure. Not because he thought so highly of himself, but I think because wisely he understood human nature. And so one of the things that he said to them in that message, and I quote, he said, I am thankful that many of you bear witness that there is spiritual profit for your soul in my preaching of God's word. I marvel at that grace. But please reaffirm from this text what you already know, namely that gratitude for spiritual profit from a preacher should not produce a kind of partiality that will only listen to that preacher. The test of whether you are seeing and savoring Christ or humanly drawn to me will now be put to the test. My prayer and hope is that you will show in these texts, in these next five months, that your allegiance is not primarily to me. Because this happens in a lot of churches. Unwittingly, many Christians do, and I say unwittingly, It's not always conscious. They're not always aware of it. Oftentimes, they would likely even deny it if you brought it to their attention. But unwittingly, many Christians do exactly what Paul tells them not to do in that text and in the text that we looked at last week and in the text that we are going to look at this morning. And that is they gravitate toward their favorite minister toward their favorite associate pastor or toward their favorite elder or it could even be their favorite deacon or their favorite Sunday school teacher or it could be the person that leads the worship music. That's why I came to this church. I am his biggest fan. And they gravitate toward these various individuals and it begins to create division within the church. So much so they gravitate to these individuals that if that person suddenly were not there for some reason, whether good or bad, they oftentimes will simply leave. This almost always happens when the person leaves under difficult circumstances. When an elder or associate pastor or a deacon or the worship leader leaves under disgruntled circumstances, that's when you realize who the followers were. Because oftentimes, the people who leave with them don't even know all of the details of the situation. It doesn't matter. That person, that deacon, that Sunday school leader, that person that oversaw that particular ministry was my hero. They're hurt, so I'm hurt too, and I'm leaving with them. We're done. Sadly, this often happens even when they leave for good reasons. The associate pastor, elder, worship leader, 
simply has to move to another state for job reasons, career move, moving closer to family, to be near grandparents. And then there are those who think to themselves, well, they were the whole reason I came to this church. And so since they're going, I guess we'll just start looking elsewhere. Or sadly, when they know that the the preaching pastor is going to be out of town for a Sunday or two, as I will be gone in August, there is this thought, well, you know, this might be a good time to take that weekend getaway that we've been wanting to do, or visit that one friend's church, because, you know, Exxon's not going to be there anyways, let's just skip church this Sunday. But if you are committed to Christ, if you are committed to Christ, to knowing Christ, to loving Christ, to glorifying Christ, if your whole life is focused upon and revolves around living the gospel of Jesus Christ and bringing the greatest glory to your Lord and Savior, then it should not matter who is behind the pulpit or who is leading any particular ministry. The only thing that should matter is does this church preach and teach Christ crucified and faithfully preach and teach the Word of God, regardless of how that is done? Regardless of whether you're talking about a Jonathan Edwards style of preaching or a Charles Spurgeon style of preaching. And if you're not familiar with what I mean by that, let me explain. Jonathan Edwards was known, the man who is credited with leading him and George Whitfield, credited with leading the Great Awakening of the late 1700s in colonial America. That man who would preach his sermons and people were known to fall out into the aisles wailing and repenting of their sins, was known for writing out his sermons, and he would stand behind the pulpit and read them, almost in a monotone manner, hardly moved, just read what he wrote. And the Holy Spirit would use the message from God's Word and impact the lives of thousands. And then you have Charles Spurgeon, who was quite animated all over the stage. He would oftentimes pull out his handkerchief and he would wave it around. And usually it was a white, pink, polka-dotted handkerchief. I think he did that on purpose to get people's attention. But he would pull it out and he'd wave it around, he'd dab his forehead, he'd stick it back in his pocket, flailing his hands as he preached. Shouldn't matter. The style of the preaching... All that matters is the content of what is being proclaimed. Shouldn't matter the kind of worship that is led and conducted in that church, whether it's contemporary worship music, whether it's solely hymns and a piano, whether it is only a pipe organ, or whether it is only a cappella. Who cares? What matters is Christ being preached and taught, and proclaimed accurately and biblically. 
shouldn't matter if a church has a youth group or not, or has a young career adult ministry or not, or whatever other kind of ministry you can think of that all of the big to-do churches out there have. The only thing that should matter if you are committed to Christ is, is Christ present here in this church? Is he being proclaimed? Is he being exalted? And are they being faithful to the word of God? This is the problem that the church in Corinth is having. Of course, along with a lot of problems that they are having, we're going to go through those as we go through 1 Corinthians. There is a whole host of problems that the church in Corinth is dealing with. But one major issue that they are dealing with that Paul has to address, he began to address it in verse 1 of chapter 3. In fact, he initially addresses this in verse 10 of chapter 1, is that the church in Corinth is gravitating toward their favorite minister. Thus, Paul says in verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? In other words, who are we really? I mean, let's stop and think about what is Paul? And what is Apollos? What is the big deal between me and this other guy? We both put our pants on one leg at a time. I know they didn't wear pants back then. We both put our sandals on one at a time. What is the big deal between these two individuals? Paul's answer is in the rest of that verse. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says we are simply servants through whom you believed, not because of whom you believed. But Paul wants them to understand that we're simply vessels. We're just instruments that God used And God could have used anybody. There's nothing particularly special about Paul or Apollos. We are simply the means of grace through which God chose to sovereignly open your eyes to the glory of Christ. Paul wants them to understand that. That the Corinthians did not come to faith because of Paul and Apollos. Each did their part, as Paul says, as the Lord assigned to each. They were each given a task. They fulfilled that task, and God gets all the glory. What does he mean by that exactly? As the Lord assigned to each. He actually explains that in verses 6 and 7. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Here's what he means by that. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Notice how he repeats that phrase almost identically twice. God gave the growth, end of verse 6. End of verse 7, God who gives the growth. Paul wants them to get that point. And we need to get that point. That at the end of the day, God gets all 
the glory, not just for our regeneration, but also for our sanctification. God gets all the glory. Now, in saying this, Paul is not just choosing random metaphors. He's actually being historically accurate when he says, I planted in Apollo's water. You go back and read chapter uh, 18 and 19 of the book of Acts, and what we see there is Paul goes to Corinth first by himself. He goes into Corinth. When I say by himself, without Apollos, he goes into Corinth, and he's the one that initially stays for about a year and a half, first in the synagogue, going to the synagogue every Sabbath, arguing with them. They won't listen, so he goes out to the Gentiles, although there are some Jews within the synagogue, we're told, that do believe him, and they follow him, and they become converted. But after a year and a half, he leaves. While he is gone, Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos in Ephesus. They explain the gospel more clearly to him, and then they take him to Corinth. And so then Apollos goes to Corinth while Paul is gone back to Antioch, And he continues to disciple them and to teach them the word of God. And then on his third missionary journey, Paul comes back to Corinth and he ministers there with Apollos in Corinth for a set amount of time before heading back to Jerusalem where he is then arrested and ultimately ends up in Rome. But the point is that Paul reminds them that all I did was plant the seed. I came through and I planted the seed of the gospel and then I left. And Apollos came and he watered what I had planted and helped you to grow and taught you the word of God. But ultimately, it is God who provided the growth. You see, Paul sees that he and Apollos are simply servants. They are simply servants to whom God assigned a specific task, a specific skill, a specific talent, a specific gift, a specific ministry, so to speak. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He will get more specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, Paul will say this to the church in Corinth. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now listen to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God who does that. God saves individuals, and then he decides sovereignly what gifts they will be given, what talents they will be given, what abilities they will be given, and how he will use them for ministry. They are simply vessels that God uses. Secondly, Paul wants them to understand that God, the fact that God used 
Paul and Apollos says absolutely nothing about them. In other words, it's not that God chose to use Paul because he had so much to offer God. It's not that God chose to use Apollos because he had so much to offer God. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians, for example, chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Paul says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. So here's the confidence, Paul says. The reason I am able to preach, Paul says, and to minister and to teach and proclaim the gospel with such great confidence, it's not because of anything that is in himself. He says, not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, listen, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul says, our sufficiency isn't from us. It's got nothing to do with us, but rather God made us sufficient as he appointed us ministers of the gospel and he gave us the gifts and the abilities and the talents and everything that we need so that we might minister the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory. While they each did only what God has commanded, Paul recognized it. God commands Christians to evangelize. God commands Christians to minister to fellow believers and to reach out to the lost uh, in the world as well. And while they each did what God has commanded, Paul wants them to understand in the end of the day, it is God who provides Paul wants them to understand that regardless of how much we evangelize, regardless of how much we minister, regardless of what we do, unless God sovereignly provides the growth, unless God intervenes and blesses our efforts, we can witness all we want and nothing's going to happen. But God said to Isaiah, what Isaiah chapter 6 is all about. Isaiah sees the magnificent vision of God on a throne, and then God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so God says, I will, and I'm paraphrasing. But then you continue reading, and he says, they will have ears, but will not hear. They will have eyes, but will not see. What he's telling Isaiah is that you are going to be my prophet, Isaiah, but no one is going to listen to you. Yet Isaiah did it anyway, because he was commanded to. But at the end of the day, all of our efforts in evangelism and ministry will only produce the desired results when God provides the growth. Christians are commanded to evangelize and to minister. But this doesn't mean, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, we should not say to ourselves, well, then it really doesn't matter then, right? I mean, why does it matter if we evangelize? Why does it matter if we minister? 
If those who are going to get saved are going to get saved regardless of what we do, well, then what's the point? We'll just pray that other people share the gospel. We'll just pray that other people minister to the saints and the lost. Well, two reasons. One, it's an act of obedience, right? It's an act of obedience. I mean, if God were to say to you, I want you to go into a city and spend your life sharing the gospel with them, but understand not a single person is going to listen to you, would you go? I would hope so. Because God commands it. And he commands that we minister to one another as well. But secondly, is that these um, activities, evangelism and ministry, these things God uses as a means of grace. For example, when we talk about salvation and regeneration, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul will go on to say in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Although regeneration is a sovereign and monergistic work of God alone, God chooses to use the gospel as a means of grace to people's salvation. People must hear the gospel or be presented with it in some way, either in written form or verbally, but people must receive the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That is what God has sovereignly willed. And so we must evangelize because God uses the gospel as a means of grace. Also, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for example. There, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. God uses the Word of God as a means of grace to grow us in our sanctification so that we might be equipped, trained, prepared for all that God has for us. So Paul wants them to understand that while him and Apollos were obedient to God's will, it is God who caused their ministry to have the kind of impact that it had on the church in Corinth. This is such an important lesson for all of us to remember, I think, for two reasons. Because one, this truth should prevent Christians from choosing favorites. Because there is nothing different between one person and the next. And secondly, it will keep those who are actively involved in ministry humble and keep us from being prideful. Because there is nothing in and of myself that contributes anything to what God may do through me. In the end, those who evangelize, those who engage in ministry, and I'm talking about all ministry, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a home Bible study teacher, 
whether you're a deacon, an elder, a worship leader, whatever the case may be, in the end, we are simply tools. <coughs> we are simply tools that are being used. And no one, no one ever praises the tools for a completed project, right? I mean, we have some good friends in our church right now, the Robertsons who are building their own house, crazy people. When it's all said and done, people come to see the finished product. Nobody is going to look at all of the tools on the floor and on the workbench and say, wow, what an amazing circular saw to do that. that. That's amazing that this thing could build that. Or that this nail gun, wow, what an amazing nail gun that it could do that. I mean, somebody might say that. But then there's medication for that, I think. But we all recognize that this finished product is the result of the skilled builder and the intelligence behind that building. These tools are just tools. We just use them. Circular saw, unless you plug it into a power source and unless it's in the hands of a skilled builder, will do nothing. It simply lays there. Does nothing. It can't do anything. All Christians who are used by God in ministry were just tools. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm a broken tool. I'm like the nail gun that's got duct tape all around the handle of it. It's barely being held together by the Holy Spirit. Somehow God uses me. And I don't know why. I look back at my upbringing and I am astounded. I am astounded at where I am today. There's no difference. And there's no difference between tools. You talk to a builder, whether you're using a Makita or a Black & Decker, it has to do with the person handling the tool. Or you look at two, two bowls, for example. I'll give you another illustration. You take two bowls, two glass bowls. They're identical to one another. One you fill with fruit, fresh fruit that's been cut up. And you set them out on the counter as your guests come to your home. Which one are they going to be attracted to? The one with the fruit, right? But does the bowl make the fruit? Does the bowl make the fruit taste better? Does it make it more appealing? No, it's the same as the empty bowl. They're identical. The only difference between the two, the only reason some are attracted to the one is because somebody took that empty bowl and put some really good stuff inside of it. My friends, that, that is those who engage in ministry. God takes an empty, cold, lifeless bowl and he puts into it Christ and the Holy Spirit and the gospel and certain gifting and talents and abilities. 
Don't be attracted to the bowl. Be attracted to what's in the bowl. Christ, the Holy Spirit, God. Then why try so hard? Why try so hard if, as Paul says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything? Why bother trying? Look at what he says in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. In other words, because at the day of judgment and in the next life, it matters. What we do with what God has given us in this life matters. Now, first of all, when he says, are one, he who plants and he who waters are one, what does he mean by that? One in purpose, one person, one body. I think he means one in purpose. In fact, I know that must be what he means, that they are one in purpose. In other words, on the one side of the equation, there are the laborers, there are the ministers, there are the vessels that God uses, and on the other side of the equation, there's God. And so Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your ministry is. He who plants and he who waters are one in the eyes of God. They are a tool that God simply uses. But here's what we cannot miss. He says, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We forget that sometimes. We forget that what we do matters and echoes in eternity, not for salvation. Salvation is, don't misunderstand me, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, period. But what we do with what God has given us, namely that he has revealed to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, what are you doing with that information? What are you doing with that knowledge? And according to 1 Peter, everyone has been given a gift that we are to use. And what we do with that matters. I'll give you some text to prove my point. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And then in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. We conveniently gloss over these kind of verses. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. <clears throat> Paul says, he talking about God, he will render to each one according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Scripture says this, for we must all, remember he's writing to believers, we must all, believers and unbelievers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Now, I know that there are a lot of people who want to try to interpret these texts as saying, oh, yes, we'll receive according to what we've done, meaning whether we received the gospel or rejected it, whether we received Christ by faith or rejected it. That, that's what we're talking about there because it's faith alone. Our works don't matter at all. Well, let's not, let's not forget the story or the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Remember that parable? Jesus says that a master goes away on a long journey and he gives to one servant five talents, to another two, and to another one. And when he returns, the one that he gave five to made five more. The one that he gave two talents to made two more, and the one that he gave one to didn't do anything with it. But he buried it, and he gave it back to his his master. And at the end of that, the master rebukes that servant, and he says this in verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with inheritance. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's what's interesting about this, is that he doesn't simply take it away. And by the way, if you keep reading verse 30, that worthless servant is cast out into outer darkness. So in this parable, we have three groups of people. We have the one who rejected the gospel. They were presented with it, rejected the gospel, and cast out into outer darkness. Then you have those who received the gospel, the two talents, and they made two more. And then you have those who received the gospel who were given five talents and made five more. What is interesting is that the master doesn't take away the talent and keep it to himself. He doesn't simply say, I'm going to take it back and you'll be cast out. But he says, give it to the one who has ten He doesn't divide it among them either. Give half to the one who has four and half to the one who has ten. But he says to the one who has, he will be given more so that he has an abundance. Clearly the difference, the implication between these two believers, these two servants, is that one did much more with what God had given him than the other. They both get into heaven, but one receives a greater reward. Now, what that looks like in heaven, we can have that conversation some other day. But nonetheless, he receives a greater reward. What's the difference? I think the difference is simply this. You have the difference between the believer who is saved, he knows he's saved, and everybody else knows that he's saved, and that's good enough. I'm going to stay a believer, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to do the minimum that I need to do to get into heaven. Then you have those who will take everything that God has given them and use it to the extreme for his glory. They are so overwhelmed by the amazing grace of God, they will pour themselves out for his glory. Those individuals will receive a greater reward. 
the coming of Christ. The reason that Paul gives for this back in our text is in verse 9. For we are, he says. So what does he mean that each will be received his wages according to his labor? Here's why he says that. For we are God's fellow workers. Now, by fellow workers, he does not mean fellow workers with God because the very next phrase says, you are God's field, you are God's building. God is the land owner. He is the building owner. He is the master, right? No servant ever views himself as a co-worker with the master or the owner of the property. They work for the owner. When Paul says we are God's fellow workers, he means Paul and Apollos are fellow laborers working for God. We work for God, but at the end of the day, God owns the field. We are simply the ones working in it. God owns the building. I'm just a lowly construction worker that's swinging a hammer inside of it. God is the owner. And thus someday, every laborer in God's field, every laborer in God's building will receive his reward according to what he has done, according to how hard he worked in God's field and how hard he worked in God's building. But the point is this. God owns the field. God owns the land. God causes the growth. Thus, to God belongs all the glory. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that these truths will keep us humble. We pray that these truths will prevent us from committing the mistakes of the past, namely in Corinth, that we would not place people up on a pedestal because we are all human. We are all sinful creature and we are all just empty bowls that have been filled by you. Father, I pray that whether it be my ministry or anyone else's ministry within this church, Lord, I pray that people in this church will be attracted to Christ and not to the bowl and not to the tool that can do nothing by itself. Lord, I pray all these things in Christ's name.